<laughs> I just came from being up at Spirit Rock for six days, two days of which I was teaching a retreat for the staff with my good friend Julie Wester. And often, as Julie starts any piece of talk or conversation in the hall, she goes, (sighs) and pretty soon she had the whole community going, (sighs) it's actually quite nice. So I've sort of gotten in the habit of it. Mm. So I wanted to start tonight with a story. And the story is from that, there's a wonderful collection called the Jataka Tales that are stories that are supposed to be describing the many, many lives that preceded the Buddha being the Buddha. So these were lives when he was not a Buddha and he was many, many different things. He was... He was always a man. He was never a woman. I think he missed out on something there. But we don't need to to go there. But he was, you know, a person, and he was an animal, various animals and various birds. And they're they're wonderful stories. They're a lot of fun, and and um, they always have a a pretty good point. So in this particular story, um, there's it's about a young man, and the young man. It's actually not clear to me which person in this story is the Buddha, but doesn't matter too much. And he's off at a university at some distance from his home, and um, he's talking with one of his professors, and the professor makes some comment about something that this young fellow might need to do. You know, you want to make sure you don't die young. And the young man says, but nobody in my family ever dies young. And they went back and forth about this. And the young man was absolutely insistent that for many generations, no one in his family had ever died young. So the professor was, of course, kind of curious and not very believing of this statement. So at some point, he packed up and he went off to see the young man's father. And... um, and I'm realizing I may not have printed out what I need. <laughs> I didn't. So, but I'll tell you the story anyway. And so he goes to see the young man's father, and he pulls out the sack, and he says, I have these bones here, and they're your son, and he's just died. There's been this terrible accident. And the man just laughs. And he says, no, it can't be true. Nobody in my family ever dies young. And the professor is just astounded. And so he says, well, tell me why. And then what I forgot to bring you was this wonderful poem that the man recites about how for many, many generations, his family and everyone in his family has treated everyone that they met with kindness, the animals, the people. They did acts of kindness. They sent kind thoughts to all of these beings and they spoke to them with kindness and because of this deep, deep tradition that had gone on for generations his family never died young so I'm sorry I don't have the poem because the poem is kind of the best part however 
Um, it's it's a it's a story that's quite sweet. I don't think it can guarantee. I can't guarantee that as we work with this, that any of us aren't going to die young. Although I'm told I've lost my opportunity, but I don't know if that's true. <laughs> I like to think that dying at 66 is still dying young. So, and I'm not planning on it anytime soon. So, but we know that living in such a way is extraordinarily helpful. Living in which we are attempting to be kind and generous and thoughtful in all of our actions. And in fact, I was listening, I hadn't thought of this while I was writing the talk, but I was listening last night on my way home from Spirit Rock to NPR. Maybe some of you heard this program. And um, they were discussing, there are people who are now assessing there's a, a kind of a process for assessing the national happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, right? And one of the best ways to be happy, I was so delighted to hear this, are acts of generosity. And they went on at some length about this. People have begun to study it. And they've even invited people into groups and given them charitable things to do. And then they do these charitable things and lo and behold, they're happy. Well, that's quite, it's totally in keeping with the Buddhist teaching, who says if you do something generous, you can taste it for weeks, months, years after you do this generous act. So this is really what this is all talking about. And I know in my own teaching, I come back and back over and over again to the theme of working with our daily life as practice, and our relationships with the people we live with and work with and our friends with as a very important part of that practice. And, you know, you all have assorted relationships in your life, and then you come here, and particularly people who've gotten a bit involved here, as sometimes happens, then you begin to connect with people, and you have those relationships. And we're always confronted in, in our lives and relationships with how, how do I do this wisely and well over and over again and often it's about that where we come to so often I think is the question of speech and, and I've been known to say and I continue to say that for my money wise speech is probably the daily life practice for most of us because it's so there in almost every waking moment and so you might remember I mentioned a few weeks ago we had a weekend here at Vipassana Santa Cruz with the board group and the teacher group and a few people who've been around the community for a long time working with wise speech as a community how to say what needs to be said to each other. And part of what happened at this retreat at Spirit Rock was the same practice of council and working with a community, a much bigger community of people who work together, working with wise speech. And on Monday I'm flying off to Oregon where I'm facilitating the board of a Dharma center there and working with them on how do they talk to each other, how do they speak the truth that needs to be said in their community. 
So it seems it's up for me right now in terms of my thinking. So we can work with relationship and in particular with speech as a practice. And any practice that you take on, any intention that you create, is an intention to wake up. And in Buddhist thinking, full awakening means that you would have a complete end of greed, hatred, and delusion. So you could imagine that. Sometimes when I say that, I think, I, I can't even believe that that really exists. I mean, it's so huge <coughs> to imagine the mind without one speck of greed, of attachment, and not one speck of aversion, nothing. Nothing, nothing, and not one speck of being deluded. You know, my mind has a ways to go. I know that. And you know, you could imagine if you if your relationships or your community consisted of people who had no greed and no hatred and delusion, it would be pretty remarkable. But it also um, shows us that because there's so much of it in our everyday life, and so it often comes up in our relationships with each other, that that's an excellent place to work on it. You know, can I begin to clear some of that away? Can I be in this relationship in this moment without wanting it to be other than it is? Or without aversion to who this person is? Or can I see them really clearly? Can I see who they are and not my story about who this person is? Because we so often see our stories. And it's important to do this because practicing on the cushion, you know, that's just not enough. You know, there's way too many folks who sit a retreat or sit a lot of retreats sometimes. That's often what happens. Retreats and retreats and retreats because that's where the real thing is. And then they go out and they try to live their lives or maybe they don't try very hard, I don't know. And their lives are a mess. And that's actually not a really useful way to practice. You know, what seems to be helpful is to use the time on the cushion to create that stillness and centeredness and groundedness and then have a whole chunk of practice that's about your everyday life. So, you know, it's it's a huge challenge. It's a challenge with the relationships we've chosen. And then, of course, it's even more of a challenge, I think, sometimes, with the relationships we haven't chosen, the people you end up with, you know, in the next cubicle or, you know, in your workplace or um, doing something, even people that you might meet and do things with in this community. And, you know, there's so much hurt around relationships. There's just not anyone who hasn't been badly wounded or and who hasn't done a fair amount of wounding themselves. So it's a very down-to-earth way to begin to practice. So about a year ago, there was um, some, some people from this community um, sat me down and said, Mary Grace, you're too grumpy. And, and I am. It's true. 
and um, and that they were unhappy. I had lost my temper at a particular meeting, and they weren't very happy with that. And um, it's an old pattern, and it's just not my better place. And so, you know, I I heard it. I wasn't. I was as those kinds of feedback tend to be. It was not very easy and of course it made me even grumpier to hear it but I did my best and and one of the things that I do know to do is to kind of chew on that kind of stuff for a while after I've heard it and so as I was chewing as the days and weeks went by I also ran across an ad for a wonderful set of CDs it's actually only one CD by Pema Chidron who's a really great Tibetan nun and teacher and Western woman herself. And the, the, the CD wasn't out yet. It wasn't the CDs that did it. But the title of the CD was Don't Bite the Hook. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was such a good teaching. Just seeing it in the magazine, it was like, oh, don't bite the hook. You know, I mean, I grew up fishing, right, with my dad. And I know, you know, you put the worm or the whatever on the hook and you make it look really yummy and then you lower it down in there and some poor fish comes along and gets caught, right? They don't pay attention. They're not very awake fish. And, and so they bite the hook and, and so that's what we do in our interactions with each other over and over again. Every one of us here has bitten some particular hook. Who knows how many how many times and so there are a lot of ways to work with speech so that we have less likelihood it's not a complete guarantee but less likelihood of biting that hook so there's counsel practice and nonviolent nonviolent communication there's other kinds of listening practices and they're really, really helpful. So the general guideline for wise speech, according to the Buddha, is that it be honest, beneficial, timely, and kind. And it's an interesting mix. Honest, beneficial, timely, and kind. So it's got to be truthful. Got to be truthful. No lying. But it can't be truthful and mean. We all know that place, right, where you tell somebody something that they ought to know. And often where it's not beneficial, it's often not timely, and it's often not kind. Kind means in the sense of said in a way that is kindly. doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to hear. So we bludgeon people often with the truth. And it's got to be helpful. But it can't be helpful and not true. So that would be codependent, right? And a number of us know what that's like, where you try to help somebody and you kind of do it even though it's not what you're saying or doing isn't really authentic. And that is not useful. And in the end, it makes a much worse mess. And it has to be timely. So one of the things I thought about when I was thinking about timely is um, Russell, my husband, does not like to be interrupted when he's in the middle of doing something. 
if he's really he's one of these people who really focuses. So if he's doing something in the automobile, like merging on the freeway, there is nothing that I will say other than maybe screaming if something's about to happen that is helpful or timely. I've actually learned I will stop mid-sentence as we get to the on-ramp and wait because it isn't, I mean, it's not even beneficial to me because he's not listening. And then I pick it up, right? And so there's, timely is kind of an interesting thing. And in our relationships, we begin to suss out a bit. You know, what's timely for this particular person? You know, when do they need to be spoken to? Do I talk to them? You know, some people you should never talk to before they have their coffee in the morning. My mother was like that. You know, you just don't go there. And it's not timely. Other people, after 7.30 in the evening, forget it because they're asleep already. And so you begin to find what's the timely place. When is it useful to say something? So it has to be all of these things. It has to be said in a way that's warm and friendly. Friendly might be a good way to say that. That it's not condescendent or arrogant or cold or said in some way that's kind of distant. So whatever you need to say, it needs to be said in a way that the other person can hear. So all of these things have to come into play. Honest, beneficial, timely, and friendly. Even if it's difficult. This does not mean you never say anything that's difficult. Sometimes we do. We have to. It's really important to. But then you work at finding the right time and the right tone of voice and really wanting it to be beneficial to yourself, to the situation, and for the other person. So one way that I've worked a lot with, with, um, with wise speech is the practice of counsel, the practice of either two people or a circle of people. And in that practice, there's an intention to speak from the heart. So that would be another way to talk about wise speech, is speaking from the heart. To listen from the heart, or as our Quaker friends say, to listen devoutly, which is the way that I like to, like to think about it. You don't plan what you're going to say because you're waiting, you're, you're really listening. And if you're planning, we know that place, right? If you're planning what you're going to say, are you really listening to what he or she is saying? Probably not. You know, so you, you really have to be right there and wait and then let it arise in the next moment. And um, to speak honestly and leanly and not at not too long. And you know, the wonderful thing about these kinds of practices or the practice of nonviolent communication um, are that um, it's not that speaking carefully always fixes things. It's not that speaking the truth in a council necessarily means that everything is going to be fine from here on in. But um, there's something very, very profound about speaking our truth and knowing that you've been heard. You know, so wise listening is really, I think, also part of the practice of wise speech. Hugely important 
to have a clear intention to do this. You know, to have that intention. I really am going to work to speak wisely in this interaction. And I love it sometimes. It often happens in groups like this. When I'm having a conversation with somebody, it might even be very casual over lunch or tea or something like that. And the other person says, wait a minute, I want to think about how to say this because I really want to use wise speech. And then we wait and they think about it because that's their intention. It's that strong. And then whatever needs to be said gets said. It's very, very helpful. So having that intention really is key. And and um, we... We, it really gets us on the right path. And so I found there's a, um, Sharon Salzberg was teaching about wise speech, and and she um, in this teaching she was she asked people to imagine a time when they might have felt the urge to gossip. I suspect this is an urge that all of us has felt at least once. <laughs> and she said, "You can feel it rising up inside of you, right?" And then she said the key is just to notice that feeling, you know, to notice, oh, I really, I really want to gossip about or say something about this person or that situation. But she said the key is not then to act immediately, you know, but to just notice you really want to do it and to be with it and, and sit with the feeling and then, and then, you know, really wonder, is, is this really what I want? And she said, well, saying what I have the urge to say right now really serve my goals in the relationship with this person and in my life? And if the answer is, yeah, then you go ahead and you say it, right? And if the answer is no, at this point you still haven't said anything. It's very cool. So then you don't say anything, we hope, and you begin to see that there's a, there's some way in which you, you ha- actually have some choice around your own speech. A couple more things to say. Why speech, I think, is deeply informed by the practice of silence. The fact that we've all learned how to sit and be still and be quiet, that's actually one of the places where you can really begin to notice the different kinds of feelings that might be coming up in an interaction. Often they come back while we're sitting on the cushion your confrontation with your boss today or your partner last night or whatever. And, and so it comes back and, and we realize, oh, I was hurt or, oh, I'm really angry or, or whatever. And it also is because we become more comfortable with silence, it is that place that allows us to pause or to wait or to go into silence for a few moments before you say what you need to say. And along with that, is the freedom sometimes not to respond immediately. We really think that somehow if somebody says something to us, we have to say something right back. And you know what? That's really dangerous, right? Because that's that place where we can be reactive. And we're reactive, and all of a sudden the mouth opens, and the words come out, and probably mid-sentence you think, oh no, that's not really (laughs) what I wanted to say. So that place of, of stopping, or even I advised somebody the other day, as I often do, you know, go in the bathroom and close the door. You know, you can do that. People always, that's a fine excuse. And, and um, wait until you can say whatever is wise. 
to slow down. I learned this a long time ago from a couple who sat with me at that time, and they said, you know, we have this practice. This was long before I did any of these different kinds of practices of, of speech. And she said, um, we, we have a commitment with each other that if it starts getting heated, we will slow down and talk much more slowly. And it sounds a little silly, but it actually works because it just keeps you a little more able to stay aligned with your intention. Hmm. So maybe one of the last things to say, a couple of last things to say. I really think that being waked up happens partly because we behave in a waked up way. And so that we make choices not to um, speak or to act in a way that continues to create conflict, that creates more wars, if you will. Um, and so we, we realize, oh, you know, I, I told the story in here not too long ago about having gotten into a bit of conflict with somebody on my road about whether the road was going to be opened or closed and I kept, they were going to close it and I wanted it to be open. And I got an email with all capital letters, you know. <laughs> and um, I said to my husband, gee, it was all the capital letters. He said, that means he was yelling at you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to think what kind of an angry capital lettered email I was going to send back and I was on my way to bed that night and bumbling around and all of a sudden I thought just apologize just apologize get over it the road's not going to be open you were pushing where you didn't need to push stop and apologize and I thought and really in the moment I realized it was the right thing it was such a wonderful moment I was like oh I don't have to have this war. I can just apologize. So I did. And it, everything eased, and it was better. It was probably better for him, and it was certainly better for me. Henri Nouwen, who is a great Christian writer, says in a quote that I really love, he says, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among people who love poorly. The hard truth is that all of us love poorly. We need to forgive and be forgiven every day, every hour, unceasingly. That is the great work of love among the fellowship of the weak that is the human family. So that's really by way of saying, you know, we're not going to do it right. I will undoubtedly lose my temper again. I tend to be a little volcanic on occasion. Each of you will do whatever you do that's not so skillful with speech. And if we understand that we can apologize, that we can clean up our messes, and that we can forgive each other, then that's really how we gain the courage and the sustenance to really make this a practice. So I think I'm going to stop there and see often there's 
questions and comments about wise speech, since it's such an interesting topic. And I'd be happy to hear what you have to say, and we can continue the talk that way. Or not. Please. So apropos, today I got a, a request from my supervisor to comment on a colleague's um, performance this year. Uh-huh. And uh, it is at the colleague's request that I was asked to comment. And I don't really have very much in any regard positive to say. And I don't know how to put that um, without, uh, and I have no interest at all in, in any kind of skirmish at all with this other uh, wow. So I'm not sure what to do or how to do it. Um, I was listening very closely. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping that I would have. I would be honest and, and tell the truth and, um, and also be kindly. Right. Yeah, so sometimes we have to deliver really difficult news. You're not performing very well. And can it be done in a way that is supportive enough so the person can move towards change, either whether change is a different job because they're in the wrong one, or change within the job because there's something they didn't see. I actually... Um, there's a, a person I know at Spirit Rock who's been there for quite a while and I knew there was some distress about this person's performance and I knew it was possibly mm, dicey about whether they would stay or not and if, if they left it wasn't going to be willingly and someone actually confronted this person her supervisor and gave her a very difficult feedback and put her on probation. This was in December. And she spoke at this meeting. She just, not too long ago, finished the several months of, three months of probation and spoke about what a gift it was. That there was a teaching in there that she really had needed to see. And... So, you know, it can be done, and I think it's hugely difficult. And I don't know enough about what your situation is to know whether there's some place in there where that kind of presentation can be made to this person, where it will really help them see, oh, I really do need... Because she understood that it wasn't the workplace, which is what she'd been saying all this time. It was her. I have no difficulty telling the truth to my colleague uh-huh. directly, but I have to report this to my supervisor. Are you allowed to talk to the colleague, colleague oh, sure. directly? I made that, I made that and say, please rescind your request. Or, <laughs> or ask them if he's open to, he, she is open to difficult feedback. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, it might be a gift coming from you and not coming from someone else. Please. I was just going to actually comment on that. Um, in, in a number of ways that you could maybe approach it, especially if you have to write it up, you could like first write 
what you think those person's strengths are, and then write where you think that what mm -hmm. improvements you think they need to make. So mm -hmm. instead of actually saying how they're negative, you're you're saying how they can improve, what they can do in a positive way. And if there is an issue about the person staying there or not, that supervisor, whoever can review it with them, can ask them, you know, what the company or whoever can do to help them to be able to, you know, make the improvements mm -hmm. or perform their job yeah. in a way that, that you expect them to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, also asking them if they're open to some constructive criticism puts them in a place where they say then say yes, and so instead of being defensive. It's such an interesting question because that's really a very difficult place because wise speech doesn't mean you're never angry, never have for difficult, strong things to say, any of that. It may be really important to speak in a way that's very strong, sometimes even, I like to think of ferocity. You know, it's where you really say, no, you can't do that anymore. But you do it in a way that is not reactive. So, yeah. Please. I really appreciate this topic. Um, and it's one of the reasons I can't start the practice at all. Uh, because, and I like that one of the concepts that have really helped me is this idea of not being very skillful. And um, not been very long time. Uh, and found through the use and finding out about that word that it's okay not to be skillful <laughs> and to share with my partner that I'm sorry I didn't mean to take things this way but I'm not very skillful and I'm not trying to get into a fighting or uh -huh. I'm trying to explain myself and I'm just doing it poorly so I can move back uh -huh. and I learned that in uh, anger yeah, it's so nice. helpful to think about it as a skill and not, I don't know, not a law, <laughs> you know, like wise speech, you've got to do it. But when it's a skill that you can develop and train in and practice and learn to do better, then it's like that's workable. We've all done that kind of thing. Yeah, thank you. Please. Yeah, I can relate to you and you mentioned about you can kind of blow up sometimes or you have like a I sometimes can do that and um, I find now like you talked about going into the bathroom and kind of um, to remove yourself I tend to walk away and I'll count to 10 or to 20 or to 50 or 100 <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing too is I think sometimes um I've taken the four agreements, which aren't related to Buddhism, but it's a, a Toltec. It's, uh -huh. um, not taking things personally, not making assumptions, being impeccable with your word, and always doing your best. I find often that some of the stuff that it stirs inside of me is really my, my own crap. Uh -huh. And I'm faced with stuff that maybe reminded me or brought me back to a situation when I was a youngster or something and, and so I have to stop and say whoa where's this coming from uh -huh. where's this coming from why, why am I reacting so yeah. I have to really think and then you talk about timeliness it's like 
I feel pressure with timeliness because it's like, what if it takes me a long time to figure out where this is coming from and if I need to talk to this person? But I guess you have to be clear with them before you're going to talk anyway. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not circles, so. Yeah, thank you. That, that's really, that's such a, that is a helpful place about always, you know, remembering that often that reactivity, it's ours, it's not, it doesn't belong to the situation. Raina, did you, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I find that for me a big challenge is to be able to use those same skills within myself. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That, um, to be able, you know, I mean, they often, you know, and, and to be able to slow that voice down enough to remember to be kind and how I speak to mm-hmm. myself mm-hmm. Um, or beneficial or... Timely. Yes. Mm-hmm. Timely. But, you mm-hmm. know, this is not a nice time to be beating myself up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it, it all fits very much. I mean, and what it calculates, at least for me, on an internal level, is compassion. Uh-huh. Yeah. Speaking from the heart. Yeah. To ourselves and to others. Yeah. Maybe that's enough. Whoops, one more. Well, I, I just wanted to share kind of my process because I really appreciate what you said about slowing down. Uh-huh. I mean, one of my teachers told me I have the intuition of a cat in a mouth like a machine gun, you know. <laughs> psychotherapist, astrologer, and I work with clients, and um, and so there, I do have a lot of intuition, but sometimes it's like too intense for uh-huh. people, and so I, was, I didn't, there was an awareness of the other person about where they were at and how much they could uh, take, and what I found, what was really beautiful was that over my work with people, I started to really slow down and trust that the right words would come through me rather than, you know, taking my wisdom mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, sharing it in that way, more of a kind of an ego way. I would slow down and I would listen yeah. for the words that needed to be said to that person. And sometimes, if it's a really strong person, I might be like, you know, being, you know, swearing or, you know, being real... Uh, more out there, and it's someone else. It could be like I'm yeah. talking to a child, and it's so interesting because it just took me slowing down to really be present to what needed to be said in the moment. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so that that's really helpful. <laughs> uh, it is. It is a hugely helpful one. I think. All right, we have just a few announcements. Um, actually, I mean, there's a gazillion things I could announce, but I'll try to keep it down to a few. Um, this weekend, there is a two-day retreat that Carla Brennan is teaching on Saturday and Sunday called Deepening Our Awareness of the Flow of Life. And it's a two-day meditation retreat. It starts at... Um, Nine on Friday goes to nine and nine to four on Friday and nine thirty to four on Sunday. And um, so, if you'd like a two-day retreat, a chance to sit and walk and practice, so I'm sure there will be instructions. And um, there's flyers over on the table. 
And the following weekend, if you like working with wise speech, um, my husband Russell and I are going to teach a day long for couples here. And so if you're any variety of committed couple and you would like to learn a little bit more about counsel practice, um, that's what we're going to teach. And this is based on longer weekends that we teach together, but um, we're going to just teach one portion of that weekend and offer it as a day long. So if that's interesting to you, um, there's flyers also over on the table. They've got a little yin-yang on the top of them. It would be helpful, but it's not totally required if you would email me. The address is on there and let me know that you're coming. But um, So this is Saturday, May 3rd. But if you wake up in the morning of the 3rd and you think, oh, I'd like to go, please come, because we won't turn you away. And then just a couple of long-range things. Um, I, I believe there are still a few places in our retreat on May 21st to 25th at Land of Medicine Buddha in SoCal. So if that's interesting to you, there are flyers over on the table. And then there's some other, um, there's a meta class that's happening. It just started this week um, with Jill Hyman on Wednesday evenings at 6.30. So if you're interested, I'm sure you could come next week and be part of that group. I think that's all that needs to be announced. From There are other flyers over there. There's also copies of the new issue of The Inquiring Mind from Spirit Rock. Um, and so if you're interested in um, a magazine that's, or a paper that's got a bunch of good articles and also practice listings all over the country, that kind of thing, um, please take one. They're offered um, for your enjoyment, and um, we'd be delighted for you to have one. And there's other things on the table over there. Um, other announcements? Anything I've missed? Phyllis, please. Um, there's a Dharma Tape library back there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.